Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast. So this episode is coming a little bit later than we'd planned. It's based on a conversation that we had over the Christmas break just before New Year's. And we were talking about what's coming this year in the region. At the time, many people were decrying what a horrible 2018 we've had, what a horrible year it was for global stability, and bracing themselves for potentially an even worse 2019. And who can blame them? The year was an absolute mess. But we're looking at things slightly differently. 2018 was a very painful year. Nobody knows that more than ourselves. We lost two very dear friends towards the end of it, Ra'id Faris and Jamal Khashoggi. But it was also an important year for us in many ways. It validated a lot of what we've been screaming into the void for a very long time about Trump, about the far right, and about the Gulf autocracies. I hope you enjoy this 2019 Outlook episode where we're going to look at the state of the Arab world order and its prospects for the year, and more importantly, the prospects for resistance. 2019 will suck, but we're going to fight through every moment of it, and what's going to come after will make it all seem worth it. And by the way, the original Christmas break recording is about an hour and a half long, and it's available exclusively to our Patreon supporters. If you're not a member yet, what are you waiting for? The link is in the description of the podcast. Let me start from the now confirmed news that Arab countries, uh, a lot of Arab regimes are actually seeking to renormalize their relations with the Assad regime. Of course, uh, the Assad regime was suspended from the Arab League in 2011. And when I heard the news, you know, this was, I think, in late uh, 2018. There was a lot of talk about that. There's an Arabic poem that came to my mind. It's a poem written by Ahmad Matar. And I believe it was written sometime in the 1980s. And I'm going to say it in, in Arabic. And then, Ahmad, you can probably try to translate. It's titled, Al-Thawru Farra Min Hawirat Al-Baqar. Al-Thawru Farr. And towards the end of it, these are the lines that actually came to my mind. وبعد عام وقعت حادثة مثيرة لم يرجع الثور ولكن ذهبت وراءه الحظيرة. So the poem basically, it's painting a picture of a farm or a barn or a pen or something, and a bull's fled. So all of the cows convened like a committee to debate the issue, figure out what's going on. Maybe they're very bureaucratic cows. And some said, well, he's apostized and abandoned us. Another said, to hell with him, we don't need him, etc., etc. They had this big meeting in which they blew a lot of hot air and nothing happened in the end. They just decided he'll be back soon. And then a year later, something else strange happened. The bull did not come back, but the rest of the cows fled after him. Ahmed Matar is like a, a very political folk Arab poet, who wrote in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I think he's still around. He's still around, yeah. So, لم يرجع الثور ولكن ذهبت وراءه الحظيرة. Ahmad Matar, of course, when he wrote this poem, he had a very different context in mind. It was about Egypt abandoning, you know, the, the Arab bloc and normalizing relations with uh, Israel. This is like during the time of Sadat. So it's a, like noting the different context. I find it very fitting, the words themselves, very fitting for what happened with Assad. So in 2011, his regime was expelled from the Arab League because it was unusually repressive. Now, Assad's repression is within the range of the new normal in the Arab world. The bull did not return to the barn. Instead, all the cows went after him. I mean, in 2011, Assad's regime looked like unusually brutal. Look at it this way. A regime that tortures women's rights activists, bombs other countries to oblivion, kidnaps and kills and dismembers a journalist on foreign soil, 
Do you think such a regime has any kind of moral high ground to complain against Assad? So in other words, Assad was abnormally repressive in 2011. And unfortunately, now this is our new re reality. This level of repression is now within normal. And the countries which are normalizing, they were Bahrain first, which is generally seen as like the country that the rest of the Gulf bloc send to test the waters. After Bahrain, there were immediately rumors that the UAE is about to reopen their embassy in Damascus. And then Omar al-Bashir eminently went for a state visit to Assad, the president of Sudan. But this isn't because Assad has changed, but because everyone else has changed after him. Uh, it's like we said in our previous episode, The End of Arab History, that these Arab regimes have become hysterical. It's a level of repression that they haven't been at for decades. And they're deep in paranoia and they see enemies around every corner. They're delusional and they're so precariously placed and so unsustainable. It's got to a point where they're now convinced that the only way for them to maintain control is through this massive industrial scale, brutal Assad style repression. And I want to go back to that episode, the end of Arab history. So in that episode, we said that these dictators actually think, they actually believe that Gaddafi's problem or Mubarak's problem, etc., was that they were not repressive enough. Imagine that. They think that the reason why Mubarak lost power, Gaddafi lost power, etc., that they were not repressive enough. So when they look at Assad now, I think at some level they kind of admire him. Even if at some point they wanted to remove him, they're kind of like, look at this guy. He survived. We threw everything we had at him and he still survived. We want to be like him. We want to be just like that. And it's not just the repression, but it's also Assad's manual. I mean, it's the way that Assad did this. He used nationalism. He used jingoism, sectarianism where it suits him. Of course, also speaking against extremism, etc., and sectarianism when it suits him too. Also inviting foreign sponsors. And of course, the massive, as you mentioned, the industrial scale repression at home. This is the manual, which unfortunately seems to have become the new normal. And the aim, of course, the aim of all of this repression is in the end, send a message to your people. Abandon all hope. Abandon all hope. Don't you dare challenge us. We will crush you. It's almost as if this is the new Arab social contract. So basically the previous social contract, we're going to give you jobs and basic social services and you shut up. And then they couldn't even keep uh, their end of the bargain. So it became, the, the social contract became, or the promise became, we're going to fight terrorism and keep you safe. You know, we're going to fight ISIS, etc. And you shut up. Now, ISIS's caliphate is in ruins, and, you know, it's become, ISIS is now kind of a local threat, really. So the new offer, the new social contract being offered right now is, weirdly enough, we crush you and you shut up. There is nothing that I'm offering you beyond this. It's just naked repression. Yeah, we mentioned this in uh, episodes six and nine with Nasser Wadadi, and we go into it in depth in our book. You kind of just summarized the first couple of chapters, but... This is the vicious triangle of terrorists, tyrants, and foreign intervention and how it emerged. And I think you also had a speech in Johannesburg with the Oslo Freedom Forum. I'll, I'll put a link in the description of the podcast, basically going into the same thing. But the way Nasser described it in episode 9, the catch-22 of Arab reform, we give you a livelihood in exchange for your loyalty. And it was a contract, it was a bargain that kind of, it worked for a long time. People didn't have their livelihood. And... They, they took this deal, but now they don't need this deal, firstly. And secondly, the governments aren't even able to provide the deal in the first place because they can't guarantee their livelihood because of their own economic 
unsustainability. And the response for this is not to fix that economic unsustainability. I mean, there have been efforts like Vision 2030, but in the end, when the going gets tough, it's always revert back to the norm of repression. So basically, they have a crisis of legitimacy, and the response to it is naked repression. The thing is, this kind of relationship is actually a harbinger of collapse. Naked repression is a race to the bottom. Eventually, you're going to create so much resentment that you're going to lose your core support, the support of the elites. And we've seen that happening in certain key countries. So you're going to also lose your diplomatic cachet, if you ever had one. And of course, you're going to cause such an explosion of instability. You're going to end up becoming a chaos actor with the hope that, you know, even in all of this chaos, you're somehow maintain order or maybe even you're creating the chaos intentionally because, you know, you want to kind of throw all the, all the cars in the air. And within this chaos, you will hope to maintain order within your own quarters and somehow come out on top, which, by the way, reminds a lot of Assad. And I've seen analysts saying that autocrats can win. This is what their win looks like. It kind of looks like an Assad win, a total Pyrrhic victory, an explosion of instability. But then the dictator survives somehow. And then they kind of make excuses to rationalize or justify the way in which this unsustainable win has been conducted. I mean, I, I was looking at a few theories on Twitter, but actual analysts putting the idea forward that the reason the Arab League and Arab regimes are normalizing relations with Assad is because they're kind of trying to pry him away from Iran and bring him back into you know, the Arab sphere of influence or something. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're kind of saying we're embracing Assad so that we can pry him away from Iran. But this has never actually worked. I mean, uh, if you remember in 2016, Saudi Arabia tried to do that with Iraq. They kind of reached out to, to the, the now ex-Iraqi Prime Minister, Haider al-Abad, if you remember. Yeah. And it's not just that. I mean, the Iraqi attempt was an absolute failure for many reasons, not least of which is that they didn't have the attention span and the commitment to actually do it. They were just looking for a quick win. But also the depth, the sheer depth of the Iranian intervention in Syria, it's not firstly something you can do with even a few months of sustained engagement. And secondly, it's no longer even something that Assad has a choice about. It's not like he can ask the Iranian regime to pack up all of its militias and go home anymore. He no longer has the power to do that. And he no longer has the independence from them to do that. It's, it's, it even goes beyond that. I think the whole thing about the Iraqi Shia outreach episode, which Saudi Arabia attempted, there's a concept in Arabic, which actually was put forth by Ibn Khaldun, which was called Al-Asabiyya. And kind of difficult to translate, but kind of like it's a community's basic understanding of its own group loyalty, its own tribe. It's probably not, not tribe is not the right word, but you know, it approximates it enough. You're not going to ditch your association with whoever you perceive to be your people for the sake of Saudi money. Iraqi Shias aren't going to ditch their group loyalty for the sake of the country which was the birthplace of Wahhabism. I mean, even if you do that, you're going to be doing it half-heartedly and temporarily and basically in a transactional kind of way. So it seems to be that MBS and really, you know, the, the leaders of the counter-revolution here in the Gulf states, they have this kind of kafil mentality. Kafil is an Arabic word for the labor sponsorship system that exists in, in Gulf states. There's this attitude among these dictators that everything and everybody can be bought with money. When your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And unfortunately, throwing money works a lot of the time. I mean, they go out into the world with this mindset that everybody is corruptible 
and they encounter enough corruption, enough corruptible people like politicians, etc., to keep it going. But then even that has a limit in the end. They say that money can't buy taste. It also can't buy common sense. And sadly, they have an abundance of one and a severe shortage of the other. Do you remember that video they made in 2015 or 2016? I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> it, it kind of illustrates this, this delusionality. So it's an animated video. I'll, I'll have to put the link in the description because you might not even believe me. It wasn't explicitly official but it was almost certainly made by official channels and then you know put out through their network of informal accounts because they wouldn't be able to pay for that much animation otherwise but basically it's an animated video of the Iranian navy firing at some Saudi ship in the Gulf and then the Saudi forces decide to retaliate full-scale F-16s take off towards Iranian territories the Iranians fire rockets back and then they're all shot down by Saudi Patriot missiles. And then eventually the Iranian regime completely collapses and the Iranian people rise up and raise pictures of MBS in the streets. And, you know, they're <laughs> celebrating them as liberators. Iranian people are so happy of being liberated by Mohammed bin Salman that they raise the Saudi flags and they're so grateful of, for, for the Saudi king. I mean, I don't know. I mean, imagine the idiocy of actually someone actually created that video. Someone spent money to have it made. They distributed it on their channel, although I'm, I'm pretty sure they're going to try to say that these are like unofficial channels, etc. Incidentally, the video was created and distributed by an account which is associated with and followed by Saud al-Qahtani. So good luck saying that they had nothing to do with this creation. But anyway, this is the level of idiocy, unfortunately, that we're dealing with. This is, this is the level of delusion. It also shows a mentality which is, I don't know which hell this was dragged out of, but imagine a mentality that's more neocon than neocons. Like, take away the ideology part and just leave the pure, distilled hawkishness. I mean, at least neocons have an ideology which they wanted to spread. And they had some higher ideals which sound good, even if they were implementing them in a, a horrific and totally counterproductive way. At least they'd kind of pay lip service to, you know, democracy and freedom and liberty and these higher ideals. What ideology does MBS represent or MBZ, the Gulf monarchs, um, they're becoming basically a global symbol of repression, greed, and corruption. Which, by the way, brings us back to the point of social contracts. Uh, we're looking at an Arab order that offers nothing to its citizens but repression. This seems to be the new ecosystem now. There's no ideology. There's uh, no economic promise. I mean, one thing that happened in 2018 is the implosion of MBS's Vision 2030, I believe. Of course, it has not yet completely crashed and burned, but I think it will. When Vision 2030 was declared, many people were excited. I mean, even we were excited. We thought at the time that, you know, it appeared that they're actually going to fix the structural imbalances of the economy. So they're actually going to create vibrant and open economies. That's what it looked like at the time. Yeah, and they're walking it back now, basically. So after all of this stuff about making the country sustainable, weaning it off oil reducing sort of government subsidies, shrinking down the public sector, it's all being walked back. Saudi Arabia just approved a couple of months ago the 2019 budget, which is the largest budget in Saudi history at a time when they're trying to wean themselves off oil and become sustainable. They've managed to increase handouts even while the oil price is falling and they're increasing their own deficit. So they're kicking the can down the road and they're running out of road very fast and they're not doing 
anything to build more road. In fact, they're probably destroying some of the road. And we've talked about this before, how the handout model has the end. You have a massively bloated public sector with a lot of people getting government salaries to basically sit around and do nothing. And meanwhile, you know, a very small, very shriveled private sector, which you're trying to grow and trying to encourage to create employment. You know, I live in the UK and you live in Norway. We both know very well that a free market economy does not in any way preclude having good welfare services. But the handout model and the entitlement lifestyle has to end. It's just not sustainable. I mean, on that point about, you know, having a free market economy which and also having good welfare services, you can't put the cart before the horse. I mean, this is the point. I'm recording this from Norway. And Norway has one of the world's most successful welfare systems, but it's also a vibrant market economy. Private enterprise creates wealth. And when you have a surplus, the surplus can be actually used to fund welfare services. I mean, remember, actual economic reform is going to involve pain. So they're going to have to communicate that to, the, to their people somehow. It's going to involve taking away the handouts, which of course is going to piss people off. Uh, it's going to reduce their uh, living standards for a, at least for a while. The way to do this the right way, if you want to do this the right way, you have to level with your people. You have to say, listen, we're going to go through two or three years of absolute pain. Unemployment is going to rise. A lot of you are going to lose your jobs and a lot of your privileges. But it's going to be for the better. It's going to be for the better because we're going to fix our economy and we're going to get off this oil binge that we've been on for, for decades. This is the message that whoever the leader is in any of those countries needs to give out the message should be here. Listen, we've been on this oil splurge for 40 years or whatever, and this is unsustainable. And because it's unsustainable, we have to take it away. And we have to create an actual sustainable market economy. And obviously, to do that, you have to actually have kind of an open channel with your people. You have to, have, you have to build a relationship with your people. You have to level with them. They have to become your partners in this plan. But then look how they're handling it. Repression and handouts. I mean, that's just aside from the fact that you can't even have a market economy without providing basic property rights, guaranteeing an independent judicial system, and making sure that people are safe to invest their money. You can't have a market economy if an investor thinks, you know, there's a good chance next month he might be locked up in the Ritz-Carlton for six months and have his uh, entire wealth extorted from him. But basically, the stuff you said about leveling with your people... And, and getting them to see that we're all in this together and we have to make short-term compromises in order to guarantee our future security and stability. This was Isama Zamel, the young Saudi economist who was arrested by MBS in 2017. And he's now wasting away in a prison cell in reportedly terrible conditions, probably being psychologically tortured, if not even physically tortured. He said these exact same things on Twitter, no less, and on his blog, that in order to accomplish an economic transformation, you have to cut the people into it. Um, you're going to put them through the pain, so you have to get their, their sign-off. And you can't do any of this without a national conversation. And where did that get him? It got him terrorism charges. This is the conversation that they do not want to have. They don't want to open any space for citizen engagement, for free speech, out of fear that it's going to lead the conversation very quickly to political rights. And it will, because it's inevitable. And they don't want to give any citizens political space. I mean, they're learning all the wrong lessons from the Arab Spring. I mean, going back to the Arab Spring now. Because this is where the story really starts. I mean, this is where this, this whole you know, wholesale collapse, the slow motion collapse starts. The lesson they learned is 
hey, we have to be more repressive. It's just so painful to think that we've been saying this stuff since at least 2016. And if all of these big investors and Western political leaders and business leaders, etc., had actually taken these warnings from ourselves and many other people seriously at the time, instead of falling straight, you know, head over heels for MBS, then there wouldn't be visionary young people and young reformers being tortured in prison right now. There wouldn't be a dozen Saudi feminists being tortured in prison by Saud al-Qahtani's gang right now. And by the way, the handouts aren't just going to citizens. The Saudis are also splurging across the region in an effort to buy the loyalty of regional regimes. They've pledged money to Sudan, to Egypt. They've been been bailing out Egypt since 2014, to Tunisia, to Jordan, now to eastern Syria. I mean, they're just signing off aid packages left, right and center when they can't even get their own economy in order. And when your only tool is a hammer and you only have two hammers over here, repression and money, and you're running out of the money. Let me turn the conversation back to Assad. So Assad's victory, I mean, it's, I mean, to me at least, it's obviously a Pyrrhic victory. I mean, I, mean, I imagine Assad doesn't care so long he survives. He doesn't, he doesn't care how, how much destruction he brings upon Syria so long he survives. And you mentioned before, Assad has little control over his own fate. But here's the message I want to direct to the pro-revolution, anti-Assad Syrians who might be listening. What is it that made Syria so complex? Because it was multiple conflicts, multiple levels and layers of conflict piled over each other. I could ident- identify at least four layers you know, on top of each other. There's Assad's conflict against his own people. Then there's the proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Then there's another proxy war between the United States and Russia. And of course, then there is the ISIS, which is basically everyone in the world really against ISIS. Notice what happened so far. Three of these conflicts that I've listed are either over or they're drawing to a close. I mean, with Trump's declaration, Trump declared that he wants to withdraw from Syria. And I, we don't know yet. I mean, Trump is basically a wild card. We don't know if he's actually going to, to, to go through with this or not. But if we take that at face value, then he's basically ceded Syria to Russian, Iranian, Russian and Iranian control. Also, with the Arab states normalizing relations with Assad, the Saudi-Iranian proxy war has come to an end, at least in the Syrian theater, with, of course, an obvious Iranian victory. So, like, the Saudi-Iranian proxy war continues in the Yemeni theater, but for the, for the Syrian theater, it's pretty much over. Iran has won. With ISIS, again, they're basically on their last leg. They're about to, to lose their last spots of territory on the map. And so, with many of these layers of conflict drawing to a close, the complexity of the conflict reduces. I mean, it's going to, it's Syria after all, it's going to continue to be strategically complex, but at least the moral complexity has gone back, I would say, close to the original grievance, which is Assad versus his people. You return to that point from which you have started. I say this with caution, of course. But we're starting to collect instances of resistance even under Assad's territory. And I think we have to leave it to the Syrian people to have the last word. So Assad's basically closing down this war by doubling down on the industrial scale executions in his dungeons. We don't even have any figure for the number of the hundreds of thousands that he had in his prisons at one point and what happened to them, whether they're still in his prisons or whether they've been incinerated as uh, we heard about certain prisons or otherwise. Um, It reminds me of a dark joke from Egypt a few years ago. During the the revolution, I think I first heard it, that 
intelligence chief uh, Omar Suleiman, who was this guy who basically strikes fear in you because he was implicated in so much terror. So he, he comes up to Mubarak and tells him, it's all over. Are you going to say goodbye to the people? And Mubarak's response was, why? Where are they going? Only it's less of a joke in Syria because he did basically try to get rid of his own people, if it's him or the people. And this is now the model of a successful regime survival strategy for Arab dictators. They now look at Assad and they think, I want to be like this guy. This is exactly how my regime should look. And we saw Omar al-Bashir from Sudan visit him just days before the outbreak of mass protests in his country, which are still going on today, two months later. But that, that was sweet irony about Sudan, by the way. I mean, so Sudan's Omar al-Bashir goes to Damascus, and then he returns. Uh, of course, I mean, keep in mind, he is an ICC-wanted war criminal, and he visits Assad, who is another war criminal. Omar al-Bashir returns to Sudan, and almost immediately, he faces a raging Sudanese uprising, which, by the way, has had far more to do. Of course, uh, it, it, it didn't really have so much to do with his visit to, to Damascus, but has far more to do with his corruption and his repression and his failure, you know, over, you know, almost three decades or more than three decades right now of rule. What's happening in Sudan within the context of the entire region, I think that's actually an indicator of what we might see more of. So if you remember in a previous episode, I think in, in uh, the, the end of Arab history, that episode, I think we spoke about how when you map out all the possible options, when you create kind of a, a decision tree and you say, of course, there's like uh, possible options A, B, C, D. Normally, what actually happens in real life is that you, you don't get either or. You don't get A or B or C. You get all of them. You get all of the above. We talked about all the different options that might happen. And I think we mentioned auto, like autocratic hysteria, this, this rise of repression and autocracy. We also mentioned economic stagnation, foreign intervention, waves of terrorism, also like crisis when it comes to foreign policy, wars, uh, broken countries, refugee waves. Unfortunately, I think what we're going to get is all of the above. This is going to become normalized as the new ecosystem of the new normal of the Arab world. But one of these options is also resistance, popular uprising. Going forward, I think popular mobilization is going to be part of the ecosystem and perhaps incre an increasingly prominent one. So going over that list of options, autocratic hysteria, we're seeing that in Egypt where they're arresting people left, right and center for any reason and none. In Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, where they're lashing out and showing how you know ridiculously sensitive they are. Um, Syria, economic stagnation and crises, all of the above. We're also seeing that in Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan. We can also predict trouble elsewhere. But you know, even the countries which haven't had the outright brutality, like Morocco and and Jordan, that's the notable thing that they're also having those economic crises, terror waves. This one's obvious. ISIS, they don't control territory much anymore, but they're reverting back to being a bog-standard traditional terrorist organization like Al-Qaeda. Foreign intervention and war in broken countries, um, Libya, Syria, Yemen, and, you know, if the, if the terror waves go badly, maybe there'll be another one. Refugee waves, that's the net result. Out of all refugees in the world today, I saw this statistic, 50% are Arabs and I think it was a UN statistic. And if you're born Arab, you're 30 times more likely to become a refugee in your lifetime. I mean, in fact, one of one of the two people on this podcast are refugees. So, you know, like the, the, it really hits home. I was a kind of refugee twice because I was born a refugee as a Palestinian refugee. And then I became a refugee again after I, I was ex expelled from the UAE. 
So everything that you mentioned is true, but also on the list is popular uprising. Let's go back to 2018 and just count how many waves of popular protest that we saw in that year. So we started 2018 with radical protest in Iran, which continued during the year. I think they still continue till, till today, even though I think it's not exactly a, uh, it's not a continuous phenomenon, but you know, they kind of ebb and flow and they rise, you know, go up and go down. Also within the year, we've seen serious protest movements in Morocco, in Tunisia, in Jordan, in Iraq, I think, and this was over the summer, and of course, Sudan. Palestine, the Gaza Return March, also in Syria. I mean, I would say in your face, anybody who says it's all over and the people have completely given up and become completely docile and we're not going to see any kind of protest anymore. Even as I say this, keep in mind, popular protests aren't the only form of resistance. I mean, the Saudi opposition, for example, right now is is, is a growing movement. Uh, and I, I'm, I mean, I was actually thinking earlier today how MBS in two years, created a Saudi opposition. I mean, there like, did you hear about any Saudi opposition 2015 or 2014? There, I don't think there was any. I mean, of course, except like two or three people in London who, of course, were very loud, but they weren't really exactly a movement, on, you know. There were Saudi dissidents. There wasn't an actual Saudi opposition as a, as a body. There are also figures from other Gulf states, by the way. It's not only Saudi Arabia. They're, they're currently, I mean, we, we are aware of a number of people who are seeking asylum. And they're joining this growing movement of dissidents and exile. The number of asylum seekers from these countries has sharply increased. And importantly, many of these newly arrived figures are integrating with earlier Arab activists. This is actually something that Jamal Khashoggi was working on. So this is a growing trend to watch in 2019. 2019 is going to be another year of activism, uh, unfortunately also asylum for, for a lot of Arab activists. My point is that Authoritarian consolidation is not the sole defining characteristics of the coming phase in the Arab region. It's only one part of an ecosystem of both tragedies and resistance. And that ecosystem of tragedies is self-perpetuating. It's not something that you can just end, even if you stop the wars tomorrow. They're creating traumas that will go on for generations. I mean, look at Yemen. The Saudi-UAE axis has basically set it up for first, first of all, they've kind of balkanized it um, and set it up in a way that even if they withdraw, the fighting is going to keep going for years, if not decades. And that's terrible enough. But then also think about the generation of Yemeni kids who have been growing up in starvation, who've been growing up without education, who've been growing up, you know, 10-year-olds with AK-47s actually being expected to fight on the front lines. You know, there are reports of uh, Houthis using child soldiers. And this isn't just terrible for Yemen, although that's bad enough. But how is this good for Saudi Arabia? I mean, you know, there was there were these jokes last year that Saudi Arabia basically, they put out a tender basically calling for companies to dig a canal around Qatar, making it into an island, like what, you're going to push them off and let them float into the sea or something? But what are they going to do? Like dig, dig a canal between them and Yemen and push Yemen off into the sea to float away towards like uh, the Maldives? Yemen is going to be on their border and it's going to be chronically unstable. It's going to be awash with arms. It's going to be awash with military groups. It's going to be awash with radicalized people, with people traumatized from early childhood. And that's, you know, it's it's like creating Afghanistan on your border. And the regional governments have absolutely nothing to offer other than that. That is their vision. Their, their entire uh, bargain is, 
we're going to inflict Afghanistan or Somalia on you if you don't shut up and let us rule you. And that's in the face of a population who are youthful, um, who are globally connected, who are on social media, who um, want to live better lives, and they see uprising as a path to a better future, getting rid of these leaders who've destroyed them. But note, note one thing. I mean, on all of those lists of options for the future, there's one item which is not on the list, which is authoritarian victory. By victory, I mean... I mean, this this idea that the axis of autocracy will somehow become both sustainable and highly repressive, okay? I mean, the idea that they will somehow be able to control the region and also become sustainable. As we enter 2019, I, I, I have this feeling that we've kind of come full circle since 2014. 2014 was another terrible year. I mean, when the Arab counter-revolutionary forces, the axis of autocracy, as we call them, they triumphantly had they had crushed the Arab Spring uprisings. You know they felt energized. It was also the year of my own jailing and expulsion. I mean, if you remember during uh, my Oslo Freedom Forum speech, which was I believe in in October 2014, I loudly predicted that they will fail, that their plan to consolidate autocracy will not work, and that's something I said repeatedly since then. And we're entering 2019 now, and I can say it even more confidently: they failed. Their promise from 2014 is, you know, reform, economic prosperity, peace, whatever. They've created an absolute nightmare. They have failed and they'll continue to fail, but they'll also continue to inflict trauma and trauma and trauma upon us, upon the people. Don't uh, forget that 2019 is the UAE's year of tolerance. As you'd expect, they kicked that off by uh, dropping bombs on Yemeni school kids and jailing a few people. So 2018 was basically among our worst years but in a weird way it's it's like how much worse can it get actually don't answer that it was a year of validation the mask has fallen 2016 we were trying to persuade people that you know mbs he's not actually a good guy like you think he is now we don't need to say that to anybody everybody knows it now and he's just such an idiot that he didn't know when to stop we've been talking about him for a couple of years but the crash was so dramatic last year. Picture it. I mean, March 2018, he gave that interview on 60 Minutes when he did that whistle-stop tour of the US and he met like Oprah and he met Bezos and uh, Zuckerberg and Bill Gates. And, you know, he, he basically met everyone who's anyone. And the world was starry-eyed. He gave that interview and everyone was like, oh, look, a wonderful reformer. He's so great. At that point, he'd already rounded up the Muslim scholars and the intellectuals and nobody cared. Um, he'd already rounded up the businessmen and the rival princes. Nobody cared. Um, they were just too enamored by his economic reforms and his social reforms. And we warned them that if you legitimize him on this trip, he will feel empowered and it'll get worse. And just a couple months later, in May 2018, he rounded up all of the feminist and women's rights activists in the country. I mean, there's only a couple of Saudi women's activists left and that's because they were they happened to be outside the country at the time and they're all terrified and they've all received threats and been told to come home and they all know what will happen to them if they do but august he had this uh very public hysterical fight with canada over a tweet i mean you think donald trump is bad um i'd like to introduce you to mbs and keep in mind that tweet was about the the, the women's rights activists who were arrested yeah, it was a single tweet. The Canadian foreign minister, was it an Arabic tweet? I think she tweeted like basically concern about the arrested activists. And 
Saudi Arabia just flipped out completely, recalled its ambassador, recalled thousands of students who were studying in Canada, interrupted them in the middle of their degrees, some of them like in multi-year degrees, uh, medical school, PhDs, just told them, pack your bags, come home now, just crazy stuff. And then in October comes the murder and dismemberment of a Washington Post journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, on foreign soil in a Saudi embassy. I mean, nobody has been that crazy. And that's when his fall from grace is complete. I mean, what is MBS a symbol of today? He's not a symbol of visionary, youthful zeal and reform or radical change. You mention MBS and people think Mr. Bonesaw. And all of that happened in... 203 days, six months and 19 days, he went from having the entire world eating out of the palm of his hand to, you know, being the pariah of all pariahs. King, Jong- King Jong-un probably doesn't want to sit next to him anymore. Might make him look bad. Here's the thing. I mean, we, we, we opened this episode speaking about Assad's repression, right? Assad's repression being normalized. There's something very important here. Assad is not a Western ally. So uh, these regimes, especially the Gulf regimes, as they become increasingly bloody and hysterical, maintaining this kind of chummy and warm relationship between them and the West is going to become increasingly embarrassing for Western governments and institutions. Um, and of course, they're going to try to do what they're going, to, what, what they're probably already doing, or they've been doing for a while, which is throwing money left, right, and center, trying to buy some friends. And yes, some you know bottom feeders and unprincipled entertainers, etc., they might be lured with the money. And sure, of course, for us as activists, it's up to us to push against this, you know, to make sure that whoever cooperates with Mr. Bonso sustains reputational damage. Of course, that's, that's kind of our task, our job. The reason it's important to bring this up is in 2019, we're expecting two big events, or I don't know if you call it tr- events or really trends, because they're going to be extended. The first is that we're, we're going to witness, we're already witnessing really, a confrontation between Trump and the Democrats. This is going to be intensified because, you know, Trump is for the first time really facing actual stiff, empowered opposition from within the system. And it's going to get ugly. Trump is not known for playing clean, as you know. The Democrats are empowered and they also don't want to back down. Imagine this, 2019, we're saying, you know, Trump versus the Democrats, etc. Holding that in mind, a second event drops on the scene the Mueller investigation and the related inquiries, of course, around it, will start to reveal more and more details about just how deeply the Saudi and Emirati regimes are in Trump's pocket, or or rather the reverse, really. I mean, they're both in each other's pockets. I know for a fact that the details about, you know, how much they invested in Trump, even before he became president, these details are bad enough. The collusion is not really just Trump and Russia. It's Trump, Russia, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Netanyahu. So imagine this, imagine, imagine how embarrassing it's going to be for Western governments and institutions to remain chummy towards these people as all of this is coming out. And on the topic of the Mueller investigation, we're actually hoping to scoop him on a couple of things because he's already announced that in 2019 he's going to be looking at um, the links between uh, Trump and the Gulf regimes. But we've been looking at that for you know the entirety of 2018 and we have quite a lot of material. And by the way, we've also just announced that we're hiring a researcher, writer to um, help us basically put this out um, because it's too much for us. But we have an investigation ongoing on uh, links between Trump and the UAE especially, but also MBS. And then through that to Russia and to uh, Netanyahu. 
imagine this against the backdrop of all of this uh, mudslinging between the Democrats and Trump, um, as more and more details are coming out, um, you know, it's just going to make it starker and starker how much the Saudis and the UAE backed Trump from the very beginning, from before inauguration. You know, he was their horse in the race. Um, 2019 is campaigning year, and all of this stuff is going to be coming out as the Democrats are choosing their next uh, presidential candidate. Um, they're going to be asked about this. They probably don't need to be asked about this because they're going to be angry because this is a large part of the reason why they lost in the first place. Um, it's gone too far now to to pull back. Saudi Arabia is no longer uh, a bipartisan issue as it once was. Um, it's now very clearly associated with the Trump project. Um, and it's any guess uh, what's going to happen if we have hopefully a democratic president in 2020. Two points, however, about what you just said. Uh, first of all, I think Mueller already knows what he needs to know about, about Saudi and Emirati collusion. Uh, but I, I just think that uh, the, the U.S. media has been mostly focused on Putin. It's been quite an uh, interesting episode so far. So let me try to kind of bring it to a close. If in 2019 we see official photos of Assad rubbing shoulders with other Arab autocrats, it makes complete sense. I mean, Assad standing next to Sisi and Mohammed bin Salman and uh, Mohammed bin Zayed He's right where he belongs. And hopefully they will all have a place together in the waste bin of history. I mean, you know, uh, you know, not mentioning the trauma that, that they're going to put us through before that happens. Make no mistake, this Arab order is a mere shadow of its formal self. They're not heading towards victory. They're heading towards a cliff edge. And the tragic part is that they think that at that cliff edge lies victory. They're paranoid, they're hysterical, and it's a race to the bottom. And they're going to break the region. Well, they've already broken the region, but they'll break it even worse. Um, but among that breakage, a space for resistance will open. I mean, uh, let me close by repeating, repeating uh, my advice. If you're a young woman or man in the Arab world right now, do not give the autocrats a reason to arrest you. Uh, yes, I know that even if you avoid them, they might not avoid you. But my advice to you is to stay out of jail, work on yourself, work on your skills, work on your social capital. To be honest, most activists are accidental activists. I mean, I mean, they come after you. If they come after you, then by all means resist. And if you choose to resist, you will find a big and growing community of activists willing to help you. Otherwise, you know, don't give them a reason to arrest you. Work on yourself, await the next Black Swan event. And if your country is fortunate enough to have a space for resistance, then by all, by all means, do not hesitate. Welcome to 2019. It's going to suck. We're going to resist through every second of it. It's going to be great. So that's our outlook for 2019. Um, not much to look forward to, or a lot to look forward to, depending on your perspective. There's also some personal stuff to look forward to from Kawakibi Foundation. We're hiring and we're launching. Uh, firstly, what we're launching. Number one, the Jamal Khashoggi Memorial Project. Uh, it's an article series in which we're going to publish a few things we've been working on for a while, um, looking at the Saudi transformation and obituary of Vision 2030, stuff on MBS's cronies and their corruption and their you know clownishness and their connections to Trump. 
It's kind of investigative work. It's the kind of thing that um, Jamal Khashoggi uh, was known for, you know, the kind of deep analysis, and we're doing it in his memory. And we're going to be hiring a researcher writer for that. Um, so check that out on our website, and there'll be a link in the description. If you're not the right person for that, then please do let us know who is if you, if you have any recommendations. Uh, we're also finally launching the Arab Tyrant Manual, the full website, as a news and analysis platform. It's going to host uh, several podcasts, more on that to come, as well as articles, long reports, videos, uh, and more. And Islam and Liberty, uh, which we're finally relaunching, that's going to be a really exciting space, basically for Muslims for whom human rights and individual liberty are not an inconvenient Western thing, they're a part of our faith. Um, and it's going to be a space to open up some really interesting conversations. Um, and this is the project through which I first met Iyad through, so it's even more exciting for me. Other than that, join our Patreon. Um, we're now supported and funded by your audience, and we have a, lit a lot of cool membership benefits coming up. I mean, these things are going to be pretty much like extra products that you're going to have access to, from newsletters to special chat rooms where we prepare the content for these podcasts and where we've done all of these investigations on uh, the Jamal Khashoggi article series on MBS's corruption, on UAE Trump ties, um, and on a lot of uh, topics for Islam and liberty. It's all there behind the paywall. Uh, it's been going for years, and we're finally opening it up for our supporters. So check out patreon.com slash Link is in the description. Thanks again to Senna and Khulud for editing. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast is a project of Kawakibi Foundation. Ya Mustafa, ya kitaban min kulli qalbin ta'allab Wa ya zamanan, sayati yamhu zaman al-muzayyab Ya Mustafa, ya kitaban min kulli qalbin ta'allab Wa ya zamanan, sayati yamhu zaman al-muzayyab